What a great day. It's Resurrection Sunday. Hallelujah. Jesus is alive. I could just scream all day. And I'm losing my voice already after singing, and I can't keep up with the team, but it was awesome. Amen. Amen. You know, um, in our text that I read in the beginning of service, and that is our text this morning, when the, the women go to the tomb, this whole passage and the Gospels record this, this event as a historical fact and something that really did happen. And there's consistency, although there's some, some additional details of different accounts there, just like you would have at an accident scene, right? So, you know, if I rammed into Colin, I'll never do that. But if I hit him, you know, driving, and Sharon was my passenger, she'd have one version of the story. Colin has another version of the story. And Stacy's, you know, three cars behind me. She happened to be there, and she's embarrassed for me. But she's, you know, but she sees what happened. And she has her version. No, Bob, you really just ran right into him. No, not really. It was kind of his fault. He stopped too fast. No, but we have these versions, right? But, but they, you put them all together, and it's, it's, there's consistency. There's something there to the story. I hit Colin. There was an accident. I damaged his car. It's my fault, right? So we can get that through the different gospel accounts with these different eyewitnesses and, and, the, and, and what they documented. But our text in Luke 24 is a reminder to us this morning on this Resurrection Sunday that our Christian experience is similar to the resurrection story. All right? Sharon and I, I remember this, I, and I have these fond memories, and it, and it makes me want to melt inside. And just, I remember we were living in the West Warwick House, and Preston and Cohen, you know, little guys, look at them now. And I remember we had this three-and-a-half-inch-long plastic stag beetle. You know, those little bugs you can buy, like toys, you know? And it was, they loved that thing. You know what we did with that beetle? We played this game. They probably already remember this because they were so little. We would take that beetle, and we would hide it somewhere in the house, under the bookshelf, under the seat cushion, behind the books, wherever it was. And we, they had to find it. And when they were going around the house looking for it, we'd sit there on the couch, and they'd be walking around. All right, you're getting warmer. No, you're getting colder. Oh, you're really, really cold. You're freezing. Oh, they back up. Oh, no, you're getting warmer, warmer, really warm. You're really hot. And sometimes when they were really, really hot, they still wouldn't find the beetle. I remember the first few times, one of my favorite places to put that beetle was on top of my head. It was. I, it was I'd balance it. I'd sit there, okay, go, and they, they'd, they'd walk away. I'd hide it. I'd put it here, and they'd come back in. All right, find the beetle. They never looked at me. They just looked for the beetle. And so they're looking around, pulling things apart, whatever. And I'd be like, you're getting really, you're really, really hot. And, of course, I'm, I'm sitting there, and there's, there's little guys, you know, walking along the side of the couch, you know, like Magnus almost, right? And I'm a little bigger. And they don't know where to look. They can't see the top of my head. And every time I said we were really hot, they couldn't find it. But they loved that game. And sometimes, sometimes, actually oftentimes, they would find that beetle in the most unexpected place or location. They'd be like, wow, I would have never figured that. But it was a fun game to play nonetheless. You know, the same is true with so many people and us. And throughout our spiritual journey, you know what? There's an amazing thing that God has given us called His Word, the Bible. And there are many people, and there might be some of you who are sitting here this morning, and there's this game. You want to play with God, and it's called hot and cold, right? Where you want to find the truth. You want to know what really is. And so God gives you all kinds of hints in creation, in nature, through people who love Jesus and tell you about them. You open the scriptures even. You might even read some stuff, and God's like, you're getting really, really hot. 
You're getting really, really hot, but then in the last minute, when you're just about to find it, you're like, eh, I don't know if I want that. Ah, I don't know if I can believe that. Ah, and God says, you're really hot. You're so close. You're just about to take it from my hand. What are you doing? Find the beetle. Find, find Jesus. Find the truth. Find salvation. And realize that your condition is not fixable without Jesus and what he's done for you to take your sins away. Just submit, give in, and say, all right, I'll do it your way. We get really warm, but we're just so afraid to, to burn up. Because when we burn up, you know what that means? It means you've got to submit. You've got, you, you got to be done, and it's got to be all Jesus. That's the hard part about following Jesus. And we don't want to do that. Anyway, so there's this expectation that we have, and we're looking for things. And these two women were looking for their Savior. Now, what they were doing in our text is, they were doing what every good Jewish woman, man, citizen would do in, that, in their religious system. And, and, and their custom was that after somebody died, they would embalm them, they would spice them up, they would make sure they were taken care of, the body was taken care of properly. They had a whole system to do this. This still happens around the world in different regions. You know, we don't, we here in the West, and especially in America, we almost, it's almost dishonoring in some weird way, like how we, I mean, in a way, we just kind of, eh, you're done, just cremate me and I'm done, whatever. Like, okay, I get it. You know, God's going to give us a new body. It's all great. But, but the customs to honor and to remember and to do the proper things. And I know customs vary. But they're doing what they're supposed to do. And they're about to go and they look for Jesus. They're going to the tomb. I can't imagine. Can you imagine? One of the important things to do when we read scriptures, especially some of these narratives that are documented in scriptures with people, is to put yourselves in these individuals' shoes, to hear what they hear, to, to smell what they smell. I mean, literally, I mean, in your mind's eye anyway. And to, to feel what they feel, walk in their shoes, to understand what's going on. And so here they go. They go to the tomb early in the morning, and they start with this. And the first thing you've got to notice in this is that these women have a surprising discovery in their search for Jesus. It's a massive surprise to them. They're blown away what they discover. They surely, think about this, they got all their gear together in their baskets or their bags, whatever it was. They carefully prepared the day before, that was the custom, and they set off together for the tomb. We don't know how far they had to walk, doesn't matter, or what they were thinking as they made their way, but I can imagine, and we can imagine... That as they approached that tomb, they were increasing in their dread and in their sorrow, in their loss. In fact, they had placed all their hope in this man named Jesus who was supposed to be the Messiah. They and the disciples and all the faithful followers of Jesus. They knew the prophecies and they're waiting and they're longing. They're hoping for this deliverance by their Messiah, this salvation that would come through him. But now he's dead. And they're broken, just on a human level, emotionally, but also in their soul. There's anguish, realizing we put all our stock into this guy, and now he's dead along with hope, man. Like, he's gone, and we're going to go, we're going to be good, we're going to do what's necessary, we're going to take care of the body for burial. We're going to do that. And so as they're going, again, they know that they would see the lifeless body of their beloved rabbi, their teacher. They knew that. And they knew how difficult it would be to touch his cold flesh. I mean, as I say that, some of you are getting skeeved out already. 
right? Just thinking about touching a dead body. I mean, in fact, in the Old Testament, it was like an unclean thing to do, and depending on what was going on in the old laws, right? But they're, good, they have to, they're doing this. And they knew that they had to dress those wounds and then make him ready and wrap those claws properly and embalm him and spice him up, the whole thing. They were prepared, and you could say they were ready for almost anything, except, except for what they found. The stone was rolled away. Remember, this stone, Matthew records in his gospel, that this was such a thing that was done to secure the stone because the the religious leader said, remember, you've got to secure this because his disciples, and even he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up again. And then his disciples were talking about the resurrection, and they said, we've got to make sure that we secure this and make sure his disciples don't steal the body and then say he's risen from the dead. So they, they put soldiers around it, and they put a seal on that stone. Man, I'll tell you what, if you tried to break in and you ruined that seal and you broke that seal, you could face death. That's how it was secured. And they, they to see the stone rolled away, they were blown away. I'm sure they were terrified and fearful and wondering, who could have done this? Maybe it was a grave robber or vandals. Or maybe they're still inside, these people who opened the stone or moved the stone away. We do not know the thoughts that raced through their minds. But when they walked in, even more, they were, I'm sure, shaking in their boots, as we say. Because the tomb was empty. It was empty. There was no one in that tomb. What a surprising discovery. Because they had prepared themselves mentally to see a body, a dead body, to touch a body. To prepare that body. And their entire task, their entire reason for going to the tomb was dependent upon that body being there. And then, there's no body. Of course, they expected Jesus' body to be right where they had left it. After all, I mean, really, have you ever seen a dead man move? I mean, I haven't. If you have, I'd love to hear your story. But... I haven't. And it was reasonable to expect that Jesus should have been right where they left him. Something was wrong, though. Something was wrong. They discovered that the body wasn't there. And then all the theories start going through their head. Maybe he hadn't actually died. But no, 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 no. There's no way. And they said, no way. You know what? Hours of torture, beating, and a crown of thorns, as we heard on, on Good Friday, if you're here with Pastor Dan, and how Jesus suffered and what he went through physically, followed by six hours of asphyxiation, and finally having a spear thrust into his side, that confirmed that he was dead. Maybe somebody had come and taken the body. That's got to be it. But there was that guard that surrounded the tomb, and these weren't the type of men, these guards, that you could bribe. You couldn't do that. Besides, wouldn't these women have been in on the plot if that were the case? And if they, with the disciples and followers, wouldn't they know and be aware that it's going to be taken? He should be right where we know he was placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. I'm going to say something here. Because when I say this, I'm not going to explain this. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do his work. It might be that someone, if you, if you hear this, 
you know it's you, and you know what I mean and what God means. Okay? Unfortunately, we too often, even if you're a Christian, expect Jesus to be right where we left him. Every Sunday, we come in for a visit, hoping that he hasn't moved. But listen, the only persons who don't move are those who are dead. Is that the kind of Jesus you're serving? Where you can put him on a shelf and come back and pay him a visit when it's okay for you? They stood in amazement, trying to understand their surprising discovery. It would blew them away. And then secondly, the woman experienced a supernatural encounter. They had this surprising discovery, but they moved to a supernatural encounter. These two angels appeared before them. And the supernatural encounter at the tomb begins with a very peculiar question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? It's interesting. Seek the living? Were they seeking the living? No, they were not seeking the living. They were, they were seeking the dead. And they still asked, the angel asked, why do you seek the living among the dead? The same question is relevant today. Every time you are tempted to relegate Jesus to some past history, it still applies. Are you looking for him in a dusty old history book? Well, he did exist in history, as you know. Amen? He did. He was here. But the one who is the great I am never ceases to be. Always was. He is and he always will be. You can't confine him and jam him into a history book and just leave him there. All the great humans, as we know and we've heard, if you've been a Christian and you've heard in sermons here, all the great humans in history, with all their accomplishments, all their contributions, they are all dead. They're dead. But Jesus Christ, He lives today. He wasn't in that tomb and He's alive. And the resurrection resulted in the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Here's the history as it was recorded in the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this about Jesus. The Son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. In other words, Jesus is God. Thank you, Deb. Jesus is God. He was God in the flesh, God on earth. And He's the exact representation. It says, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. That's what happened on Resurrection Sunday. He had a place reserved for Him. And He sat down. He looks out for us. He cares for us. He calls us to grow in Him. That's not a past tense thing. It's a present reality now, here, today, right now, in my heart, in your heart, among us, with us, in us. Why do you seek the living among the dead? 
That same question is also relevant today every time that you might be tempted to relegate Jesus to a set of laws. A code of ethics, if you will, that will help us to just all get along. Well, there's some truth to that, of course. If we listen to and what he said and love our fellow man, that should be the result. Should be the result. Should be the result. Thing is, Jesus, when you, know, when you know what he did when he walked on the earth, he wasn't just a good and nice guy. You know, he was. He was good. Because the money changers in the temple about a week before Jesus died, they sure figured out real quick that Jesus wasn't just a nice guy. If you were the Pharisee who had just been called as one of the brood of vipers, or that you're a blind man leading the blind, I'm not sure nice is the first word that would have come to your mind about him. Oh, he was good. Oh, he loved. In the truest sense of the word. He was truth. He was the way. He was life. He said it the way it was. But sometimes he wasn't nice by our definition. Fundamentally, we know just one thing about the law. You know, Jesus enforced the law. He followed the law. And that made it difficult because sometimes he came down on those who didn't keep the law. The law kills according to the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans. Only Jesus gives us life. Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly, he said in John chapter 10. And that's called grace. We don't deserve it, but he gives it to us. We sang about that. Oh, we don't, and we, we, we were praising God. We don't deserve any of that, but he gives it to us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 says, But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Always lives. Always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, the Bible says. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That is awesome. It's over. It's done. He did it. He accomplished it. It's finished. And he is alive. And he gives that hope. And he gives that life and eternal life. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Where are you looking? Where are you searching? Because again, one more, one more thing, that same question is relevant today. Every time you're tempted to relegate Jesus to a proposition or just a set of beliefs. Jesus is the eternal logos in Greek, that word. He's the word, the living, active word. But he's not just some set of doctrines. Well, I believe 16 truths. I believe nine things. I believe... Listen, those, might, those are all good and they're important. Don't misunderstand me. But he's not just words on a page. Every principle in Scripture, listen to me well, every principle in Scripture, we know for every single one of those that there is a Jesus who laughed. There is a Jesus who ate. There is a Jesus who loved He wasn't some mystical force or some kind of secret knowledge or hidden gospel we have to try to search out and find. He isn't a proof or a proposition. He's God. 
if you just know where to look. The peculiar question asked during the supernatural encounter was followed by a powerful reminder. The two men in dazzling clothes remind the women that Jesus had instructed them of what to expect and why were they so surprised that he was right. Because God is faithful to his word and he keeps his promises. And the women begin to believe when the angels say something is rising up inside them. They they, they got reminded of the words of God, the faithful God with His promises, the God of all hope who spoke and said, I have a plan and it involves Jesus. And Jesus Himself said, I will rise again. They begin to believe it's rising inside them. They believed because of what they had been told. Today, I keep raising this up. We have the Bible, the Word of God. And when we look for Jesus here, we will have a surprising discovery. He is God. He is amazing. He's not just a historical figure or a code of ethics or just a part of a religious doctrine. He's alive just as he said he would be. And we are told the same thing over and over by the scriptures, by the words of Jesus himself, not addressed not to the woman at the tomb, but addressed to us. And we know what he said in Matthew 28 after his resurrection. Behold, I am with you eh, when I'm not tired. I'm with you when, you know, it fits my schedule. I'm with you when you're doing things the right way. No, he says, I'm with you always. Always, always, always. See, the question this morning isn't really about whether Jesus rose from the dead. The question is really, where is he now? That's the question that matters right now. Over 2,000 years out. Where is he now? He's exalted at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will come and take those who are his to be with him. But right now, this moment, as we wait for his return, and we're hoping for that, right? Jesus can come into our hearts by the presence of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. Paul said in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, God has set forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. And in Ephesians 3.17, he said that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The evidence for the resurrection that Jesus is alive is found in the lives of everyone who has found him. You are the evidence. I am the evidence. We must be the evidence because Christ lives in us. He's the living King of Kings. What else? What else do we see here that we take from this account? We have this surprising discovery, right? Jesus isn't in the tomb. We have a supernatural encounter where the angels are there and they remind the women of the message of Jesus that he would rise again. And when they hear that word, the words of God repeated to them, faith and hope start rising up. They believe it. And you know what then they carry? They carry a simple message. That's what we hear here, we gather here. We have this message to share that is very simple. We like to complicate it sometimes. We like to make it super complex and explain it and outline it, 45,000 point intellectual presentation. Listen to me. Every time people are sharing in the gospel, the vast majority, I'll say, I take that back, the vast majority of the time, it is a simple witness with simple, clear terms. And this was the message they had. Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty. 
That's it. That's it. Jesus is alive. He died. He rose. He's alive. He's not in the tomb. Here's the reality. Many people, and maybe some of you, will respond as the disciples did in verse 11 of chapter 24 in Luke. And they will simply say, enough with that nonsense. Or, you've been completely imagining this whole thing. What did you do last night? What happened? You know, what, what do you, did you have a bad dream or what? You're out of your mind. Or they'll just say, that's impossible that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, as we, as, as, as we all should do, in order to verify the truthfulness of such a statement, that Jesus is alive and not in the grave, you and I must look for the evidence for ourselves. No one can do it for you. It can be presented. It can be shared. But you've got to see and look for the evidence yourself right here. Right in your heart of hearts. Is Jesus really alive? You know why I know it's true? Because in verse 12, Peter did just that. It says that he got up after he heard that Jesus is alive and the tomb was empty. That he got up and he ran to the tomb. And he bent over and he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. He went away and he wondered, what in the world happened? In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, in verses 3 to 10, there was another disciple with him. And you know what's really cool about this story? Is that when they found this out from the women, that the grave, the tomb was empty, and Jesus was not there, that... Peter's running in John chapter 20, but the other disciple outruns him. He blows him away and gets there first. And they both were able to see for themselves the evidence that Jesus was not there and he's alive. I plead with you, look into the grave and see that Jesus is not there. He is risen. He's alive. In fact, hope is alive now. Before I close... For the next few minutes, I must give you, because this was in the back of these women's minds. It was at the forefront of their, of their, in their hearts and, and, and just flooding them. And they were wondering where hope had gone. And let, let's take a look at the brief history of hope. Really brief, because we could spend weeks and weeks on this. But you all know, and most of you know, so many people are familiar. The Bible records, and it says that God created everything out of nothing. Okay, I don't get it. But let me tell you something. Either you believe that or you don't. I, I, don't, I don't mean to sound, but that, that's, that's the bottom line. Out of nothing, God created anything. But then he did something amazing. He created man so we could have fellowship relationship with him. And in the Garden of Eden, as, we, as, we, as the Bible records, Adam is there and he's given one command. He says, you can eat anything you want in the entire garden. I can't even imagine what they had. Probably the best mangoes. I like mangoes. The best mangoes, right? But you can have anything you want. The most ripe bananas, the freshest, sweetest, juiciest pineapple. Right, Max? Oh, Max isn't here, is he? He likes pineapples, right? It's amazing. He's not paying attention. That's all right. And God says, you can eat everything except from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? We know the story with Adam and Eve. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what ha- here's the thing in the garden. Before they ate of that tree, there was no such thing as hope. Was there? There was no need for hope. It was unnecessary. Everything was provided. Everything was perfect. Everything was in harmony. The relationship between. They walked together with their creator in the garden. God with Adam and Eve. It was perfect. 
There's no need for hope. There's no helplessness. There's no anxiety and fear and straining and fighting. None of that. But then as soon, as soon as the fall and the eat of that fruit, hope then becomes necessary. The result was that God put them out of the Garden of Eden because God is holy and He means business. And He can't, sin and rebellion cannot touch God. It violates His nature, who He is. He can't do that. And He said something in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He said, I will put enmity between, He's talking about the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. It was a glimmer of light in the darkness that there is hope there is something way down the line where there would be some kind of victory there would be a redemption there would be a, a, a coming back to the garden if you will in a sense that there's this relationship with God the creator that is restored and it, this is the day when hope was, became necessary there's this enmity that's going on it still goes on it was birthed and death entered and hope became absolutely necessary God and humans were separated. And now man and woman began to hope for that garden to regain what was lost as a result of rebellion through disobedience to their Creator. How could this relationship, the beauty and glory of the garden, be restored and be a reality? Well, the Old Testament, rushing forward, is a whole, the whole Testament is an account of hope. It's up and down and it's all over the place. Sometimes it fades, sometimes it's strong. But it was all about hope. It was about longing, trusting, waiting, and expecting the promise of the Messiah, the Redeemer. The Old Testament prophets talked about it all the time. Literally. And in Micah chapter 7, toward the end of the Old Testament, if you read chapter 7, I'll just put that a bug in your thing, Micah chapter 7, there is this glimmer of hope for salvation after all the rebellion. Years, and it seemed like eons of rebellion and just being apart from God and feeling hopeless and despair and destruction around from the captivity and after the captivity. And yet there are words of hope. You know what they saw through the prophets? For hundreds of years, there was light, literally light, at the end of the tunnel. You know, we use that expression. We use that expression when we're referring to hope, right? There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's so dark, and it's, I see it's way out there, but I see that little pinhole-sized light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what was happening in the Old Testament, a literal, quite literally, light at the end of the tunnel. But when, when will we see that light of hope in person? When will we see it in its fullness? Oh... Then the New Testament comes, and John the Baptist comes, and after him, Jesus comes on the scene, and hope then becomes visible. The Bible says, and we sang about it, Jesus comes as the light of the world, teaching, preaching, healing, forgiving, saving. He was, and He gave hope. Oh, this was for hope in hope's history. This was so marvelous, glorious, amazing things that were going on when Jesus was ministering for three and a half years. Hope was visible. Hope was there in the flesh. It could be touched. It could be listened to. It could be... Hope's robe could be grabbed and then healed. Right? It was an amazing thing. But then something happened after three and a half years, and we talked about it on Good Friday. Hope was suspended. Because they took Jesus away 
and they tortured him. They caused him to suffer. They took him away to be crucified for being innocent. And for Mary and the other women and all the disciples and Jesus' followers, hope was suspended. And they go to that tomb. And this is where they were. Hope was just hanging there. You're wondering if it's even worth it. You're wondering if it even exists. Jesus died. Hope must have died. But on that resurrection morning, on that resurrection morning, hope became a reality. It wasn't suspended. Now it's a reality. Because Jesus rose to be alive forever. And hope will live forever. Until, well, until we see Jesus, right? And Jesus rose victorious over death, hell, and Satan. Now, I want to point out something as, as I come to... We're going to close in one minute here. Mary is in the garden in John's Gospel by the tomb there. And it's an incredible connection if you've never caught it. But in the Garden of Eden, where everything is perfect and beautiful, God puts out man and woman for their rebellion. And still, even when he puts them out because of their sin, he still calls them and he says, Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? He still wants him, but there's a separation and he got put out. And now, what happens here in this garden? In chapter 20 of John's Gospel, Mary is there and she goes. And then she goes and the Bible records, John records, that she spoke to a man who she assumed was the gardener. And she says, do you know where they've put my Lord's body? Where is my Lord? Where is he? She didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And Jesus now... He says to her, Mary. And that's all that he had to say. All he had to say was her name. And immediately, just like that, instantly, Mary said, Rabboni, teacher. She knew. She heard, but she knew. It's him. It's my Lord. He's alive. I came to find a dead body, but here's my Lord. And in the garden, Jesus calls out her name again, and he comes to her and says, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm with you. It's okay. You have hope. There is hope. It's a powerful thing. Listen, one day, hope will be no more. Mary, they understood this. They knew if they, if they understood the Scriptures, and they were getting to that point, if you will, the Scriptures were opening to them. They knew that hope would be no more because Jesus will come again. We sang about that as well. To take those who believe in Him and have hope to be with Him forever, face to face, never to hope again. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that one day that trumpet's going to sound. We sang that too, by the way. And all of a sudden, the dead in Christ who have gone before us will rise up. And then we'll join them as well in the, in the air to join Christ and be with them forever. Face to face. No need for hope. We'll be with Him. And Jesus' words to Mary in John 11 are so fitting here. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Here's the question. Do you believe this? That's Jesus asking Mary. And he's asking us today. How about you? Do you believe this? That you might have a living, unfading hope and that assurance 
of eternal life because of what Christ did in dying and rising from the grave. You can't earn this hope. You'll never earn it. You'll never earn salvation and the hope that accompanies it. It it is to be given to you by faith. And Jesus accomplished everything for your salvation and He wants you to have this hope. For those of us who do believe, our job at Easter is to echo the women. The simple message. Proclaim the resurrection. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. No matter if like the disciples, if they roll their eyes at you and they're like, oh yeah, here you go again. That's just crazy stuff. Maybe they do think you're crazy. Or maybe they just think you've dreamed up a story. Go and proclaim the simple message that Jesus is alive and you have hope. Amen? Lord, as we go this morning, I pray that your resurrection power would fill us, your spirit, God, as we submit and surrender to you, that, God, we will walk in your anointing. We would understand, Lord Jesus, that as we uh, commune with you and as we have relationship with you through scripture, through prayer, with one another, and with your Holy Spirit among us, God, I pray, Lord, that we would grow in that faith and that hope that we have. Thank you that it's a living hope that we have, as Peter says in his epistle. And Lord, it's unfading. And there's this inheritance that we're going to have that will never, ever, ever go away. It's eternal. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that your hope is a sure hope. It's an anchor for our souls as we go through everything that we face in this life. Thank you. It's possible because you are alive forever. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen. Proclaim the message.